Welcome to Making Therapy Better, the podcast that brings together some of the top minds in psychotherapy as well as everyday clinicians to talk about where the field is headed and how we can achieve better mental health care for everyone. Making Therapy Better is hosted by Professor Bruce Wampold, who has dedicated his career to understanding how therapy works and advocating evidence-based methods for improving outcomes. His guest today is John Norcross. John is a distinguished professor and chair of the psychology department at the University of Scranton and clinical professor of psychiatry at SUNY Upstate Medical University. He is the author of over 400 publications and more than 23 books, including Changeology. He is the recipient of numerous awards and has served as president of the American Psychological Association's Division of Psychotherapy and Society of Clinical Psychology. He also maintains a part-time clinical psychology practice in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths has been helping in-person and virtual therapy practices thrive for over 20 years with their complete web-based EHR and practice management platform. As mental health care evolves, CarePaths is leading the way in making measurement-based care easy and cost-effective for therapists. Visit carepaths.com to sign up for a free trial today. And now, without further ado, Episode 1 of Making Therapy Better, John Norcross and the Future of Psychotherapy. Well, good morning, John. Um, It's a great opportunity to talk about future of mental health services with you. Uh, As our audience knows, you've been involved in um, psychotherapy as well as other interventions for quite some time, written extensively about this. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. As am I, Bruce. So let's start um, with this. Um, We know that the prevalence of mental health disorders is high and it was it was high before covid and then with covid this has been exacerbated at the same time we have uh, um, insufficient numbers of mental health professionals psychiatrists psychotherapists uh, and what have you so as you think about this and think about the future what are your thoughts about um, just in a large overview of what we need to do to address this problem? Well, I have given this considerable thought because we are mired in the middle of a global mental health crisis. People are suffering at apparently unprecedented levels. The UN estimates that in the US and Western Europe, at least 30% of the population currently suffer from um, a serious mental illness. And that doesn't even begin to address the people suffering and untreated in less developed countries. And as you know, Bruce, the dominant model of service delivery, individual therapy by a highly trained mental health professional, provides quite effective treatments. Uh, We should be proud of that. But it's greatly limited as a means of reaching the large swath of individuals in need. So now it's all about scalability and reach. Now, maybe the only plus I can see of this is that the global mental health crisis has probably reduced the stigma of mental health treatment, and it has pushed us to think more boldly and creatively about how to offer more services to the entire population. 
So you asked what needs to be done in broadest strokes. Um, enough with the lightning bugs. We need lightning. We need breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. um, so many things come to mind. You're right. Our existing mental health workforce uh, will not meet the need. So we need to expand what we currently do. So get rid of the old-fashioned idea that all patients receive weekly individual psychotherapy. Some need more, some need less. We can call that triaging or step care or personalized care. We need to expand the mental health force by using paraprofessionals, peer counselors, self-help groups, those in recovery. Um, we need to expand our treatment options, uh, such as research-supported self-help support groups. Tailored technology can complement what we do in, in psychotherapy. Uh, broader still, universal health coverage would obviously help the situation, though neither you nor I, Bruce, immediately will control that. And finally, uh, as you probably know from some of my writings, I believe we need to move from a strictly individual patient paradigm to a population health paradigm. And by the way, every decent clinician who suddenly assumes administrative responsibilities gets this. Mm -hmm. Yes, the patient in front of you at this moment is of our utmost concern, but so are the hundreds of people on the wait list, the people who aren't receiving services and want it, the people in need who aren't even looking for services. So we really truly need to adopt a more systemic or what we'll call a population perspective. Well, that's interesting, John. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, those seeking services, and many of those find very long uh, waiting lists to get services with a mental health professional. But you mentioned that there's a sizable number of people suffering from uh, mental disorders who don't want traditional mental health services. They don't want to go see what they think of as a shrink. Um, and uh, for various reasons. And, you know, in a sense, um, encouraging them to seek these traditional services just would add greater burden to uh, the service. So we got to think about alternatives, as you said. You know, with the pandemic and the shutdowns, we have made the transition very rapidly from in-person where we sit with a patient in a room uh, uh, delivering interventions to tele-mental health. And it appears that those services are just as effective, John. But again, the tele-mental health services uh, don't address the shortage of mental health professionals either. At the same time, you're seeing, and I learned this term, and it's, it's a, often used in the the uh, mental health systems and insurance world, digital therapeutics. So we have to get used to new terms, John. <laughs> um, uh, so I read an article in the New York Times, there's over 10,000 mental health apps available in your app store. Um, and as you know, nobody controls this. The FDA, for instance, doesn't approve of mental health apps. So this is, in some sense, a brave new world, John, that we're having uh, these digital therapeutics. So in particular, um, 
what's your sense of how impactful uh, digital therapeutics will be? Well, it's a brave new unregulated world, as you say, Bruce. Um, I've spent several decades with colleagues looking at the effectiveness of these of the multitude of self-help resources. That includes computer-administered treatments to apps, to books, to apps based on books, uh, to support groups online and the like. So the first thing we need to recognize and in this unregulated field, 95% of the apps and self-help resources currently on the market have not been independently researched for their safety and their effectiveness as self-help materials. Now, in fairness, many of them are based on existing models and methods that we know work, but one cannot assume that what a therapist can do, a patient on their own automatically can do. Um, so how impactful are they going to be? Um, a New York Times writer once compared moving through the digital therapeutics world was like taking your four-year-old on a walk in the park. <laughs> the four-year-old goes down and picks up all kinds of trash, but occasionally they come back with a quarter or a diamond. But we don't know the difference, so it's a buyer-aware mm. situation. Mm. Some countries, such as Australia um, and the United Kingdom, actually do regulate through their, their, their national regulatory associations these digital therapeutics on the recognition this is health. And indeed, I know you and I, Bruce, share the conviction that mental health and addictions are healthcare. It's not special healthcare, it's just part of healthcare. Yeah. So I do believe they should be regulated. So the truth is, we know they're impactful. We know they're used. For example, this coming week, more Americans will go to a 12-step self-help group than go to all formal mental health providers combined. So how impactful is it? In terms of reach and scalability, clearly they're being used, but we don't know what the long-term effectiveness is mm -hmm. on virtually all of them. Mm -hmm. Well, John, that reminded me of uh, uh, some research that Scott Miller's done that uh, Americans spend, I think it's as much or more on psychics than they do on um, yeah. psychotherapy anyway, which is a little scary. Um, but as you say, there's many self-help programs that are effective. And of course, you and I have been consulting with, with many of them. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll throw out my required uh, conflict of interest disclosure here. Yeah. Uh, but psychologists, for example, began creating seven cups of tea a couple decades ago. And he wanted to offer free texting services to people in need. Uh, so you can receive texts from a qualified, when we say qualified, someone who has between 30 and 50 hours of training. He finds that is vastly superior to no treatment at all. Mm -hmm. The research also shows it's not as effective as individual therapy, but from a population perspective, seven cups of tea, to take a single example, 
is reaching millions of people who do not have access to mental health care or do mm -hmm. not seek such mental health care. Mm -hmm. So digital therapeutics offer huge promises as a way of expanding tradition, traditional care or conventional mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. You know, this leads me to thinking about this notion of uh, precision mental health services. You know, precision medicine um, uh, has advanced um, dramatically in the last decade. Certain genotypes and certain types of uh, cancers uh, respond differently to different medications. So we need to design the therapeutic for the particular genotype and uh, uh, type of cancer. So people often use that terms for efforts to uh, uh, deliver mental health services. So the technology to be able to say uh, uh, patient X, or let's, let's not even say patient, because again, let's emphasize there are many people suffering from mental disorders. Um, who don't present to the healthcare system. But a way of determining what might be the most effective treatment for a particular um, person in distress. So where are we in terms of developing precision mental health services, in your opinion? Well, precision, or my favorite term, uh, personalized psychotherapy, is certainly growing by leaps and bounds, quite similar to medicine. Uh, there is one huge difference. In medicine, the match or the personalization is on the basis of largely genetic material and physical findings to a particular disease. Uh, as you know better than, than practically anyone on the planet, Bruce, that treatment method A to disorder Z matching rarely proves particularly effective in psychotherapy. So our version of personalized or provision, precision psychotherapy is to individualize treatment to the entire person, transdiagnostically. Mm -hmm. So there are moments, of course, where matching psychotherapy to a particular disorder or condition is warranted. A good example is probably some form of exposure therapy to trauma. That will mm -hmm. give you slightly better results than using a non-exposure therapy. But absent that and a few other important distinctions, it is far more important in mental health to know the person who has the disease than the disease the person has. And that's a 1906 quote from the founder <laughs> of modern medicine, by the way. But John, isn't this what therapists uh, have been doing since the beginning? This idea that, that you know the patient, it's not just their disorder and their current functioning, but it's their history, it's their personality, it's their circumstance, it's their cultural, economic context. Haven't we been doing personalized um, uh, mental health services since the beginning? Uh, an emphatic yes and no, almighty. So the emphatic yes is we all say we do that. And that is the elusive goal. It's the holy grail. 
you know, back in 1919, Freud introduced psychoanalytic psychotherapy because he knew not all patients would benefit from classic on the couch psychoanalysis. So we say we've been doing it, but until the last 10 or so years, we don't know exactly what works. In fact, yeah. early in my training, some 45 years ago, I was told by a trusted supervisor that a patient's color preferences might well dictate my treatment of choice. <laughs> There's absolutely no evidence for such nonsense. Yeah. So we say we've done it, but we really mm. haven't had the research. Mm. And certainly in all my workshops, I ask established clinicians, so how much training did you get in this? Like one or two hands go up, but mm. everyone nods. Yes, we treat the entire patient. And I say, well, how do you do that? I get lots of shrugs, lots of intuition. <laughs> the difference is we now have very solid research evidence to do this personalizing in ways that demonstrably work. So here's a good example. You mentioned personalizing to the patient's culture. Well, in our recent book together on responsiveness, the co-authors of the meta-analysis identified more than 100 published randomized clinical trials offering adaptive, culturally adaptive psychotherapy to patients. So a typical study of say, 40 depressed patients, 20 patients would be randomly assigned to get 12 sessions of cognitive behavior therapy and the other 20 assigned to get culturally adaptive cognitive behavior therapy. Across a hundred such studies, there's a powerful effect size for culturally adapting. Mm. And so that not only shows it's more effective, but it also addresses the ethics and the clinical imperative of meeting a patient where they are. Mm -hmm. And we have similarly powerful effects for personalizing to the patient's stage of change, personality, uh, spirituality, coping style, and the like. So we say we've been doing it for years. I see very little evidence it's actually happened, Bruce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, two good points. So we, we haven't used that research evidence in a systematic way. Again, we all say, we do the personalized and we adapt what we're doing to the patient. But how grounded is that in the knowledge we have about psychotherapy? So that's that's uh, one point. So a related issue is we're discussing personalized mental health services within the traditional model of psychotherapy. There are people who are making the effort um, to... Uh, say, you know, we have this need, there aren't enough therapists, so maybe we can develop algorithms that will predict that uh, this particular patient would do as well or nearly as well with a particular digital therapeutic as they would with psychotherapy. So where are we with that, do you think? Well, that's getting there. The systems are still quite in the early stage, I think immediately of Larry Butler's efforts to develop systematic treatment selection. He canvassed hundreds if not thousands of research studies trying to identify who would do best in the self-help. Of course, I don't think it's either or. I think of mm. digital therapeutics being used without conventional care, before conventional care if you're on a waiting list, with conventional care to augment its effects, and then is maintenance. 
I've also had lots of patients in the middle of sessions, say for anxiety and depression, say, hey, I'm having some problems uh, parenting or retirement planning, or my wife wants to go to a surgeon. Do you have a good resource for that? So it, it can be used at any time. And we know motivated patients without reality distortions who are fairly well motivated and are comfortable with technology can prosper from these digital therapeutics. Mm. We don't have great evidence, though, which ones would benefit only with that. Mm. We do know, I should say, in fairness, what the contraindications are. Very poorly motivated people aren't just going to read or do anything, and they may need some individual attention. People without the ability to read or adhere to the instructions, people suffering from severely psychotic or delusional states also are not right there, and people with so many problems that they're disabled and don't have the motivational ability to do so on their own are contraindicated. So we know some people are going to need that intense face-to-face -face contact. We're not quite there on the algorithms, though, to say, here's where it would work. Uh, John, what about preferences? You know, these algorithms really are uh, based on characteristics of the patient, uh, not just the disorder, but personality, chronicity, all the things we think about. But we know that preferences are also important. So where do they enter into this? They are hugely important. And as you know, Bruce, they're one of the three critical elements of evidence-based practice in mental health. So Mick Cooper and I have been conducting lots of research on this. So as part of the algorithm about treatment selection, we simply ask patients, do you have strong preferences for the use of digital self-help resources uh, as part of psychotherapy or instead of psychotherapy. When we assess and respectfully accommodate those strong preferences, patients are far more satisfied with treatment, they do better in treatment, and they reduce their dropout by almost half. That's a huge mm. impact mm. across the population. And you won't be surprised to hear, Almighty, that every other digital adolescent says to me, oh, I'd be happy just to stay home and listen to the app. I do suggest that we probably meet every four weeks or so just to monitor their use and the effectiveness of that. Mm -hmm. But if we start where patients are, we can be demonstrably more effective. Now, at this point, in every clinical workshop, a bunch of hands go up and say, wait a minute, John, are you saying just because they ask for it, they get it? And the answer is, of course not. There's clinical, legal, and ethical issues. But if we listened to our patients more and understood what they needed rather than what we prefer, psychotherapy would reach more people and have a much larger impact. Mm -hmm. John, let's talk about, um, because we're getting into the digital therapeutics self-help, you know, we have this notion, and I think every student uh, we train and, and every professional we talk to, if you ask them, what's the number one factor in the success of psychotherapy, they're going to say the working alliance. And the working alliance is would seem to be 
anyway, let me put it that way, uh, about the uh, collaborative work of the two people working together. Yet the digital therapeutics um, are not involved with a therapist, in, at least in the way psychotherapy envisions it. So talk to me a little bit about how you reconcile this idea that alliance is the number one factor in success of psychotherapy, yet these self-help uh, uh, and digital therapeutics um, don't have the traditional working alliance. Well, it does at first blush appear to be a paradox. And, and I would prefer just talking more about the therapeutic relationship rather than that one element of the alliance. So it is absolutely true in most of these digital therapeutics, you don't have a live person in front of you. At the same time, anyone who's undergone um, digital therapeutics, gone through their services, have read self-help books or attended other digital personless uh, technologies clearly understands that they are created by a person and embedded with huge interpersonal effects. Um, so I first encountered this paradox um, when we looked at self-help books and people said, well, there's no therapist there. I said, well, the voice is of the therapist. Mm -hmm. They talk about their foibles. They give you examples. They support you. They tell you this could be difficult. Here's a homework assignment. So everyone understands there's an implied and very explicit human element to these. So Bruce, here's a study. You take the, the contemporary digital therapeutics that I'll say are relationally embedded. And then you compare it to simply an outline without any relational voice, no examples, no support, no collaboration. You just literally give someone an outline and let's compare what happens. I'm telling you the relationally embedded th digital therapeutics are by far the more effective. Mm -hmm. So what you're really saying is this idea that digital therapeutics are uh, um, absent of a relationship is not the case. It's It's an absolute myth. Yeah. The person may be disembodied, but they are there in voice, in example, in content, and in follow-up. Yeah. And we know this, don't we, from social psychology and other areas, even literature about the relationship with the author and the characters in the story is very intense and very real. I mean, this is why people uh, cry at movies, right? There is no face And we're face. Ab absorbed by fiction. Yeah. My favorite author is, a uh, fictional author is probably John Irving. John Irving doesn't know John Norcross is his best friend forever, <laughs> but I am, although I've never met him. Yeah, yeah. that's what yeah. I mean. It's inherently relational. John, it's interesting because in uh, uh, the recent meta-analysis of the alliance that uh, uh, Christoph Flukacher did with colleagues, he found that the alliance with the internet CBT and other internet programs was as strong a predictor of outcome as yeah. it is in face-to-face. 
So this leads me to think, though, that there are, you were talking about the, the precision mental health, but those patients who have an impoverished social support and attachment um, would benefit more from a real relationship with the therapist uh, who cares for them, who understands them, than would somebody with a fairly intact uh, social network with um, still with mental health problems, but not so much related to the social world. Would you agree? I, I would agree. And Larry Butler and Ken Levy's review of the research would certainly support that. Mm -hmm. um, that, that crucible of person-to-person -person connection is particularly useful for people with low social support and with insecure attachment. And the good news is that the provision of that individual connection in psychotherapy increases both perceived social support, both in and outside of session, and also increases the security of attachment, allowing that person to seek even additional support outside of therapy. Yeah, it is remarkable, John, when you talk about this, the effect of a therapist, the person of the therapist. Um, and of course, the treatment they deliver. But um, uh, we should focus a bit on, on psychotherapy because, as you said right at the beginning, it is a remarkably effective uh, health service. So, John, here's a question for you. Um, uh, we've had some uh, very famous therapists, you think back to Carl Rogers or uh, uh, um, blocking on some of the luminaries, Virginia right. Satir, uh, um, and so forth. They were remarkably effective therapists. Um, and there's evidence to indicate that psychotherapy is not really improving over various time periods. There's a meta-analysis of the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy um, uh, over decades. Have we reached an asymptote on the effectiveness of psychotherapy? It's a remarkably effective, but are we pretty much at the limit? Hell no, Wampol. What? You're killing me here. What? what? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll throw you this. Okay. There is no evidence that psychotherapy is becoming more effective or impactful with two or three caveats. First, we become far more efficient. We're doing the same results mm -hmm. in far fewer sessions. We would agree that's at least one possible index of effectiveness, cost effectiveness. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Secondly, I think we are far more effective with the severe anxiety disorders and some of the personality disorders. But yes, overall, I would agree, using conventional treatment methods overall were not any more effective. But you let me loose now here, Bruce, and I yeah. can tell you if we leverage all the research evidence, how we're gonna get there. So first, we're going to be integrative. Forget this training in particular theoretical orientations. No other mature healthcare is so interested in theoretical orientations than we are. Yeah. 
we, we should be looking at what works, not who yeah. said it, not which theoretical orientation. And then you'll also concede, while we talk about the importance of the therapeutic relationship and working alliance, there is very little training that ensures practitioners are actually competent in delivering them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as we just discussed, we've been dis- we've been advocating for personalizing to the whole patient for at least 100 years, but we haven't really known how to do it, and now we do. And we also have great evidence, because we've been largely talking about the person of the therapist, we also have good evidence in what we can encourage and help patients do. I hate that we still call it the talking cure. It should be called the working cure. Yeah, Patients who are motivated, who do homework, think between, are coming in saying, I'm going to go co-create this work. We know do much better. So if we were integrated, demonstrated relationships, monitored our work, personalized our work, and leveraged patients, then magic would happen. And I absolutely believe we're nowhere near the ultimate benefits of psychotherapy. We're just getting to our integrative mature science person. Well, let me push back a little bit with some uh, research evidence um, uh, and some of which I've been involved in. So two pieces particularly. If you look at various naturalistic settings, as well as clinical trials, there's a great range uh, of outcomes that's due to the therapist. John, I've looked at, at some of this naturalistic data and some absolutely amazing therapists. I look at their data. I don't know who they are. It's all anonymized, but they're helping uh, uh, patients, uh, most of their patients. If they're effective with children, they seem to be effective with adults across various disorders, although some people would dispute that, whether you have expertise with a particular disorder. Um, So absolutely stunningly effective therapists. On the other hand, there are some therapists who rarely actually help a patient. And I looked at data and I saw therapists who every single patient they saw deteriorated. So that's one piece of evidence I want to talk about. The second is... Well, can, can we stop there for a moment? No, I want to do the second Oh, you part. want to give me both? Yeah, no. I want to give you both. All right, both. load it on. They, they relate to each other. The second is that it appears, uh, and this is research that Simon Goldberg and, and colleagues, including myself, were involved in, looking at therapists who, uh, over the course of their career, very clearly at uh, uh, an aggregate level, therapists do not improve over the course of their career. So you take these two results, uh, therapists not learning from their experience as therapists and and improving. Some did, but many did not. And the fact that there's so much variation in outcomes due to therapists. With the previous question, what can we do to make psychotherapy more effective? Um, Now, give me your reaction. All right. Well, So they're they're wonderful topics for discussion, but so broad that I I struggled to summarize. 
So we know we have super strengths. And if we're honest, we know we have deadheads. Deadheads who probably actually hurt patients. We, we don't like to admit that publicly. And such therapists will always will almost invariably blame the patients and talk about resistance and yeah, defenses. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. only they have these severe borderline yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You've also noticed, though, in the relationship on therapists' effects, with quite limited research, we can usually identify facilitative interpersonal skills and great responsiveness as the hallmarks of those best therapists. So that's what we ought to be training in. I absolutely agree that in conventional training system that we largely have now, therapists will not demonstrably improve over the course of their life. They continue to, to gather CEs on ethics and largely treatment method A for disorder B. Yeah. If we continue doing that, we're not moving forward. There is no good evidence that learning a fifth treatment for unipolar depression will make you a better therapist. Cognitive therapy works, behavioral activation works, emotion focus works, interpersonal works, exercise works, self-help works, medication works. Right. Stop going for just another treatment that doesn't work any better. So if we train people to actually demonstrate good therapeutic relationships and are systematically responsive in personalizing that and following the evidence in what will make them better therapists, we will do better. If we continue the way we are, I absolutely agree, we will not get better. So John, let's uh, pursue this a little more because you talked about uh, the relationship skills or what Tim Anderson's called facilitative interpersonal skills, which are a set of skills, not just social skills that you might use at a cocktail party, you're very charismatic, but these are skills in challenging emotional situations. That's where uh, I think it's clear um, the more effective therapists differentiate themselves. And we know that therapist effects are greater for more difficult uh, patients. So these therapeutic skills uh, are absolutely necessary. I can't tell you how frustrating it is when I talk about uh, using deliberate practice or some kind of method to improve those skills the resistance of not just uh, old psychoanalytic uh, uh, therapists, but with a range of, of uh, uh, kind of professors who are training students, yeah. as well as practicing, uh, um, that uh, just going over more cases, I heard this recently in a panel I was in, best way to learn how to do therapy is discuss cases. Um, and this idea that we can teach the skills, this is an art. Somebody said to me, well, how many years do you have to be a practicing therapist before you can supervise uh, <laughs> therapists? Yeah, I know. Um, so, John, what do we have to do in our training programs and in our continuing education? Because you mentioned continuing education. You bet. Actually improve. So there is massive resistance. I just gave um, a 
residential uh, workshop in another country. And the people were so open to it. When I said, you know, we talk about empathy all the time. We talk about alliance ruptures, repairing them. But do you ever receive training on them? And everyone says, well, I think I read something. <laughs> and I said, but have you ever been trained in how to repair an alliance rupture? We know they occur, big ones or small ones, in, in most sessions. Patients rarely report them, and yet it's very clear that the more ruptures you have in the lights, the worse the therapy goes. So fortunately, the supervisor said, well, we read about that, but we haven't done it. And online, there's some great uh, materials put out by Chris Moran, Catherine Eubanks, and the late Jeremy Safran. So I said, well, I've been to three or four of their training. We can do this in two hours. And the students loved it. The supervisors were giving me the stink eye the entire time. <laughs> John, this is exactly my experience. <laughs> the students, look, I'm learning to do something. Teach me the skills I need. And, and the, the students student, were like, let's do more. And I said, well, we have some other things to cover today. Yeah. And they said, well, how about one more example? And so we, you know, there's hundreds of examples. As you know, there's sort of confrontation uh, with ruptures, and then there's withdrawal ruptures. So we practiced it. And the science here is pretty good, right? You acknowledge it, you talk about it, you don't blame a patient, you try to understand it, you make an adjustment, you apologize if you think. I mean, it's not rocket science. And the research also shows that having such training in repairing rupture alliance actually leads to better outcomes. So I get this all the time. Uh, on another workshop, I was doing this with Art Bohart, a, a a fellow researcher and a friend of ours. And Art said, we're going to practice empathy. Half the crowd moaned out loud. And I was like, so just because you read it, just because you're leaning forward, doesn't mean your patients are experiencing empathy. And Bruce, as we know from the research, it is the patient's experience of empathy that matters and support. Yeah. So as a therapist, we're relatively inaccurate in identifying how supportive or empathic we are. It is the patient's experience. So when you talk about client feedback and deliberate practice, these are the methods that privilege the client's experience and allow a responsive therapist to do something different. But if we're honest, that's just beginning in the field of psychotherapy. Uh, John, uh, uh, just an anecdote about empathy, because we think, well, empathy, uh, we're in the field because we really care about people. We're empathic people. So I made a videotape for the American Psychological Association, the characteristics and actions of effective therapists. And this was before there was a lot of research on this. But, um, of course, empathy, well, I took video clips to show the audience these various skills. So number one, empathy. My student and I went through hours and hours of the APA videos and empathy was the most difficult skill to find. It was just a stunning revelation to me that empathy, which we think should just kind of- Characterize everything. Yeah, 
we couldn't find it. Then uh, again, we think empathy is relatively simple. If you're a caring, wonderful, empathic person, you'll be able to express it. Practice or think about being empathic when somebody challenges you and says, I don't think you're really helping me. Do you really have a degree? Because I'm not getting any better. Yeah, you're going to be defensive. So to understand their struggles and failures and frustration with, with getting better and changing is a really difficult skill to do. It is. And as you say, it's the most difficult in that emotional crucible yeah. where a patient is expressing profound disappointment, a lack of connection, talking about suicide, aggression, passive aggressive long silences, withdrawals, mm -hmm. yeah. um, blaming you for um, a technical uh, mistake or a relational error. It's then, as you say, that separates the I understand and the empty head nod from a deep empathic place where you can say, oh, my God, that must be absolutely awful. You come here to get helped and I misunderstand you. Thank you for telling me that and meaning that you're thanking the patient. Mm -hmm. That is probably the most difficult part of these core facilitative conditions. And again, it it takes practice, or at least I would claim it takes practice. You should uh, practice over and over again how to respond to And then, with, as you say, that deliberate practice, so you get feedback. You videotape it. You watch yeah. it again and again. When we were doing this training in repair um, of alliance ruptures, I said, well, someone give me a cell phone. And they said, well, what for? And I said, well, we're going to tape it. And then you're going to watch it and you're you're going to respond yeah. to it. They said, oh, please don't. I said, well, I don't want to put you on the spot, but isn't this how training proceeds here? And they said, and again, the supervisor's over on the side giving me that I'm going to kill you stink eye death stare. And I said, well, I'm pretty confident that the research shows video feedback is better than reading case studies. The whole place erupted in laughter, uh, but it was one of those funny, tragic moments because they aren't routinely doing it. Mm -hmm. So well, given that, Bruce, that's why I don't believe conventional training will make us better therapists, but the new technologies, the new methods, the research evidence propelled stuff absolutely will. Well, John, as you know, I have a conflict of interest around deliberate practice because I work with a company called Skillsetter where you actually respond to difficult videos and then evaluate yourself and then get feedback from an uh, instructor or a supervisor um, to get better. I use this with a group of therapists and I, of course, want to get feedback. What do you think about this deliberate practice platform? And I remember this therapist, he was kind of a burly guy with a big beard, not your prototypical looking therapist. And he, he was very frank in his comments. He says, God damn it, Bruce, this is the most difficult thing I've ever done in therapy. But it was also the most useful. 
I actually learned something. So there is some resistance to it. Um, your, your students or the people in your workshops are pretty enthusiastic, but it is a different way of thinking. It's, you know, we've been training therapists pretty much the same way. Yep. For a hundred years. Uh, and so I anticipate that resistance. I understand these are new methods that are paradigm stretching. So when we suggest you may not want to see every patient every week, when we suggest some patients might do better for group or self-help than individual therapy, that maybe an app is the treatment of choice, that um, maybe you think you're empathic, but the feedback suggests else something else. When we do deliberate practice, when we do routine outcome monitoring, I anticipate resistance in all of these, and I do try mm -hmm. to be empathic. Mm -hmm. I remember the first couple of times working uh, probably a decade ago with Mike Lambert with some of the early outcome feedback. Um, he said, do you want to practice it? I said, sure. Um, so I sent him 10 patients results. I didn't look at them because back then it was as part of the research. He calls and says, I got good news and bad news. I'll never forget this. So I, of course, say, give me the good news first. He says, <laughs> you're much better than other therapists in matching um, your patient's experience of therapy. So you'll recall he did the study. I take the OQ for them and they take the OQ and it's a correlation. And sadly, the overall correlation is not that high. So he said, so you're higher than average. He said, and I said, oh, that's great. And I said, so what's the bad news? He says, well, the average correlation is 0.3 between your correct interpretation of what your patient's experiencing. He said, the bad news is you're only 0.5. Yeah. So I'm still missing half of the patient's experience. So the good news is I'm I'm better from 0.3 to 0.5, but I still wasn't great. Mm -hmm. That was very difficult to hear. I, of course, wanted to question his methodology and tell him he was sure <laughs> wrong. And my patients are more difficult than the patients at his counseling center. But, you know, when I calmed down, I said, yeah, I need to be regularly doing some client feedback or routine outcome monitoring. So that experience helps me be empathic with fellow therapist resistance to this, because yeah. the news is not always pleasant. Well, John, I think we we both should emphasize, and we're close to the end of the interview, that measuring outcomes for every patient in every setting is absolutely necessary. I mean, let's just uh, state it as the obvious. What other endeavor uh, would you ever do professionally in which you didn't have good information about the quality of your work? And the, I'll, I'll agree with you 90% on this, Almighty. Okay, good. I, I agree that um, we all need the vital signs of mental health. So we need to know the results. But there is the 10% caveat. I've had some regular patients tell me that keep asking these is actually unempathic. They will tell me. Yeah. There are also circumstances, if I'm seeing someone in a crisis, I may forgo the outcome monitoring for that session. 
So I think regular routine outcome monitoring is the way to go. And in 90% of the time, I think it's the empathic research-supported method every single session. But there's always a few exceptions. So I, mm -hmm. I won't quite agree absolutely every session. Yeah. I would say two things, John, to just take off on that. Um, uh, one is, it's just not the outcome we need to know about. We need to know about the experience of therapy. So in systems that I work with, I also want some indicators of uh, the patient's sense of the treatment. Is this a treatment? Is what we're doing in therapy leading to progress? And the patient's understanding uh, or perception of the therapist. Is this somebody who cares, uh, understands me, and is empathic? So those two dimensions are also really necessary. So not just the outcome, but the process. But exactly. it really, but it really exactly comes so. And I and I teach all three. I want to know about progress, relationship, and the treatment itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good, good. It really is um, the patient's perception of how well you understand them and are attuned to providing what they need. So, John, we're going to run out of time, but I, I can't let the interview finish by saying uh, we've talked about uh, digital therapeutics. We've talked about self-help. We've talked about methods other than psychotherapy. We've talked to a lot about psychotherapy and how it could be improved. Um, what do we need from research to push ourselves forward? Oh, so, so we're concluding on such a huge issue, but I'm excited about the prospect that you're going to allow me to make all the funding priorities for the next decade, Bruce. So this is very good news that we can control the empire here. Yeah, you and I are going to do this. So. All right. So if we could, in this fantasy world, I would do lots of things. First, I would immediately cease all nonsense funding of randomized clinical trials of one psychotherapy versus another that don't have bona fide conditions or total shams. And I would immediately stop psychotherapy versus no treatment. We've done this 2,000 times. <laughs> stop wasting billions of dollars on it. I would probably also stop the billions of dollars spent on neuroscience genetics in the mental health area. That has been shown not to have yielded anything useful. Now, I'm always careful saying in health, of course it is, from breast cancer to response to, as we talk, precision medicine. Unfortunately, it's not the same in psychotherapy. So I would be funding lots of studies that seek to demonstrate impact as contrasted to efficacy. So efficacy is individual patient by individual patient. I want to know what percentage of the population you have reached. Yeah. So this goes back to the work with Jim Prochaska in the self-change lab. He has demonstrated that, let's just take the example of quite expensive inpatient detoxification for substance abusers. So whether you give them an intensive outpatient or a 28-day program, 
We know it's six months or a year, only 30% of people will be abstinent. And you have only then treated probably five to 10% of the entire population of, let's call them alcoholics or heroin abusers or whatever that may be. So you've had a 30% success on maybe 5% of the population. Mm -hmm. Using digital therapeutics, tailored to every stage of change, Jim can get about a 15% efficacy while reaching over 50% of the population. Mm -hmm. That impact is four to 10 times higher than the individual efficacy study. So I would stop looking only at individual patients and start looking at population health. I would also fund, when we control this, personalizing studies, not simply adapting one form of a treatment manual to another, but looking at whole care psychotherapy, attachment level, um, gay affirmative therapy versus no gay affirmative therapy. We now know cultural adaptations work. We suspect this works for marginalized populations for religion, sexual orientation, and the like. So I would fund a lot more of that and stop the senseless horse race of one, one type of treatment versus another. It's taught us next to nothing, Bruce. Yeah, And yeah, there's yeah. so much more important stuff to learn. Well, John, I will uh, affirm everything you said. We think uh, along the same lines in terms of research priorities. And just to emphasize, this idea of population effects is absolutely critical. In almost all of our studies, it's uh, efficacy for those people who choose this particular treatment, which is a small, as you say, a minority of the people who need mental health services. And we have to think about how we uh, reach out and design programs to um, address mental illness across the entire population. Just well, and and we we therefore end where we began. If we're really to address the global mental health crisis, we need to be looking at impact across entire population, not only the effectiveness of treatment seekers. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Hey, John, we're running out of time. So uh, uh, first, I want to thank you for doing this. It's always a great pleasure to talk to you. And, and we've done it many times over the course of yeah. our career. And it's always um, an experience where I learn uh, something specific and really appreciate your perspective on this. So, you know, you have painted a hopeful picture both for how we can improve psychotherapy, but how we can use ancillary or alternative uh, digital therapeutics, self-help, uh, support groups. We have to think about this. Uh, this is what I took away. We have to think about this in a very broad perspective. And when we train, we talked a lot about training psychotherapists, but we have to train these same students to think along these lines. And not simply, I want to set up practice right. and see these six patients a day. So 
Well, I agree. I am enthusiastic and optimistic about the future of mental health if we pursue these lines that are entirely research supported, as you know. So, John, so, I thank you for your time and your seminal contributions, Bruce. So, John, what you're saying is that people would follow our advice. It would be a better world. <laughs> <laughs> At least if we get to determine all the grant funding. Yeah. Well, it is important to think about um, how the whole world of mental health services is changing. And we can't just think that we're going to change the world by uh, delivering psychotherapy to those patients that want it and those patients who have access to it. Um, yes, and we can do both. This is not an either or choice. We can value and privilege one patient at a time in individual psychotherapy. And you and I both have been committed to providing such services. But if that's all we do, we're not really addressing the global mental health crisis. I think we'll leave it at that, John, because that's a wonderful statement for moving forward. So again, thank you. My pleasure, Bruce. Thanks for listening. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths offers a complete behavioral health EHR and practice management software solution including claims, billing, clinical notes and documents, scheduling, and teletherapy, all for one simple and affordable monthly price. CarePath's EHR is HIPAA compliant and ONC certified and can also support electronic prescribing for an additional fee. Their latest release, CarePath's Connect, includes automated measurement-based care and the ability to create a digital front door for your practice, as well as a free mobile app designed to increase patient engagement. If you're just starting your practice or are dissatisfied with your current EHR, go to carepaths.com to start your free trial today. To find out more about Bruce Wampold and his work as CarePath's Chief Clinical Officer, visit makingtherapybetter.com.